welcome to episode 312 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Listen, do you know what else is good works besides this podcast? Uh, I don't know. I bet we're going to find out, though. We are going to find out what is things that God has created for us to do. But also, you know, we're going through this whole, you know, I discovered that this foray into all things systematic theology is constantly leading us into the practical life. The way in which, of course, we understand theology and the way in which we worship God our daily lives, and the way in which that gets manifested then, and the way in which we live, which I suppose is what all good theology does, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it surprised me there. It sounded like you were going to keep going. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> theology really is is intended, as we talked about last week, we're, we're making a shift out of some of the more theoretical. So I, I'm rereading uh, Petrus van Maastricht, that's the hard word to say, um, PVM's Theoretical Practical Theology, and the whole thesis of his whole systematic theology is that the Bible doesn't permit us to teach a theology that is purely theoretical. And so when when the when Christ commands his apostles to teach, it's also teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Right. So we're shifting out of the more theoretical side of of systematic theology. And now for at least a little while, a couple episodes, maybe five or ten episodes, we're shifting to more of a practical bent things that the the reform tradition, the, the systematic theological tradition we're coming out of focuses on in terms of how we actually apply the faith that's once delivered to the saints. It isn't just uh, a body of divinity that sits on a shelf in nice leather-bound books and looks nice. It does nothing for you if you don't pull that book off, digest what it says, and then bring that into your very being and be changed by it, and then change your behavior by it. So we're shifting into that more practical bent, uh, which I'm excited about. I, I love theoretical theology, but it, it there's always something, I don't know, comfortable about talking about how theology has feet. I, I just think that that's a really important piece of this. And we've been long proponents of this idea of why affect the mind if it doesn't affect the heart? Why right. bring something into your yeah. life and process it merely just so you can be an armchair theologian and sound smart or use it because you want to teach somebody else if we're not teaching ourselves and the Holy Spirit not using that teaching to, in fact, impact who we are. So you're right on. And uh, for listeners who maybe have just joined us, you say small part because even five to 10 episodes, it's only between like 1.6 and 3.2% at this point of the whole catalog of the Reform Brotherhood podcast. So you can go back and listen to a lot of topics. I think we're going to use a lot of words in this conversation. Things, the the big, grand, theological, $10,000 words, they're all somewhere in the back catalog. So we're kind of subtly shifting our focus in a way. We're, of yeah. course, talking about all those great things, but trying to make them as personal, practical, and pastoral as is possible. So there's a lot of good work that will be done in our conversation today about good works, especially good works as the root. And we'll, we'll leave it there for just a second yes. so that we can affirm and deny a couple things. Dealer's choice. Do you want to go positive or negative first? I'll start off with denial just because mine's super, super fast. I know that we always say that and then it's like 45 minutes later. This one actually <laughs> is. So I'm just, I'm denying fall allergies. And do you get fall allergies or are you a spring guy? Oh no, listen, I'm equal, equal opportunity. opportunity. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's especially frustrating this time of year because it's hard to tell whether you have fall allergies or whether you have coronavirus. So right now I'm just I'm getting killed by these fall allergies. They're just kicking me in the face. So I'm if I'm a little off, it's probably because I'm I've got a bunch of antihistamines on board, and uh, those tend to make me drowsy. So this will be a good episode. But yeah, I'm just denying. I was gonna say the fall, comma allergies, which is also nice. which also works. Nice. But I'm also allergies have like a biological function, so I'm not a hundred percent sure they're a result of the fall, but they sure feel like it most of the time. Nice. I like that. It's kind of like a double entendre for yeah. denials. The fall, comma allergies. I'm just pulling up my trusty weather app right now, which has like an allergy outlook. And where I live, here's what we got going on: ragweed pollen, moderate; grass pollen, moderate; dust and dander moderate. So I think everybody's getting hooked up with this. I've actually long thought about this. Maybe we talked about this before. Uh, maybe I'm having like this flashback to the popcorn and the coconut oil, but <laughs> the long time joke, but uh, the irony to me, like the amazing thing about allergies is like, we're talking about like these, these particles that are based out of like, you know, plant spores that somehow can bring us to our knees. I like know. how, how contingent are we as beings? Yeah. If that's what causes us not just discomfort, but you're right. Like, do you get like that foggy feeling? I do. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I just get, it just crushes me. And the reason it's so bad for me in the fall, I think in terms of the actual pollen count, the spring is probably worse for me, but at our, our church, um, we, we handle the leaves by just mowing over them a bunch of times. And I do most of the mowing. So when I mow the lawn on a Saturday, I'm mulching up all of the leaves and then they go directly. It seems like they go directly to my brain through my nose. (laughs) But yeah, I I think, um, yeah, I I get like, I get like my eyes start to feel like I can't open them all the way. It's like, I've got glass in them. My, my, my face feels like someone standing on it. I just want to sleep. Um, yeah. Yeah. I I hate allergies. They're the worst. It is like an immune response. So again, talk about the fall. It's, it's not just like, well, oh my goodness, this makes me uncomfortable. My eyes are a little bit itchy. It's your immune system literally saying, I don't like this thing and I have to attack it and I'm combating it as if you were in fact sick. So it's right. almost like allergies, of course, are in their way, their own sickness caused by your environment. And you think, what a world that we live in that that would happen. Welcome to the fall, yeah. comma, allergies. Yeah, it's like a major overreaction. It's like my immune system is like a real drama queen when it comes to pollen. <laughs> it's really, oh, really sick. what it is. Oh, it's like so, my immune system is subtweeting every flower that it sees. It's just, well, it's not happy. It's super meta. That's deep. That's real deep. Yeah. Well, my denial is not too far away. And so it does have a line that connects these two. Mine is autumn or fall related. It's it's fall, comma, pumpkin spice. But here's, here's the way I want to talk about this, because I know there are people that really love the pumpkin and really love the spice. I myself am a purveyor, I would say, of both those things. But Here's what I think we need to do. So you know that the Germans have this uh, rule, which I can never pronounce quite properly, but it's Reinheitsgebot, or like the purity law for beer, which is like 500 years old. It's a, a literal statute that limits beer brewers to just four ingredients, malt, hops, yeast, water. Here's my proposal, loved ones. We need the same thing for pumpkin spice. Like we need actual pumpkin and not just like somebody dumping a bunch of cinnamon and nutmeg and like you know, cloves into everything and saying, this is pumpkin spice. We need standards. I'm not trying to invoke in an overly reaching way, the civil magistrate, but 
I kind of feel like I'd be happy to submit Romans 13 style to some kind of pumpkin spice law so that we don't just end up with everybody claiming that such and such a thing, thus and so, is pumpkin spice, when really it's like there's so much volatility in that taste. Would you agree with me on that? Uh, if it wasn't for something I read online about three days ago, I would be 100% behind <laughs> you. Are you ready for your mind to be blown? Okay. So do you ever run into one of those things online that you realize you've been understanding something wrong for your entire life? Like, like sure. you, so, that is so my life. What somebody online said the other day, and this just, just reoriented my whole thinking about pumpkin spice everything. It's not pumpkin flavored and spiced whatever. It's pumpkin spice. So you're not getting a latte that's flavored like pumpkin. You're getting a latte that's flavored like the pumpkin spices used in a pumpkin pie. So nutmeg, cloves, cinnamon. So it's like you go to the you go to the supermarket, you're making a pumpkin pie. You can either buy all the stuff separately or you can buy a little thing of pumpkin pie spice and use that to make to flavor your pie. That's the flavor. So when you buy a pumpkin spice latte at at Starbucks or you get a pumpkin spice beer, which I don't know why anyone would ever do that, but if you do, you shouldn't necessarily expect to have a strong pumpkin flavor. You should expect to have the flavors of pumpkin spice or pumpkin pie spice. So in the way that you're talking about it, yes, if something is advertised as a pumpkin flavored whatever, it should be pumpkin flavored and not just cinnamon, nutmeg, clove flavored. But if we're talking about pumpkin spice, I think I might have been convinced. I still think it's disgusting for the most part, but it's not necessarily <laughs> false advertising as, I'm, as I was formerly led to believe. All right, let's let's trigger everybody. Counterpoints, and that makes sense to me, would be you know the pumpkin spice. The part of the spice is to complement the sense that there is pumpkin present. And so like, of course, like you wouldn't just want to have the spices, those spices in like an apple pie because that would be funky. You're expecting a whole experience, and part of that is some presence of pumpkin. But I will readily admit, and I've tried to make pumpkin beer before, pumpkin and all squashes, that's a subtle flavor. You have to like over-index that. My point is probably more along the volatility of what people call pumpkin spice. Like sometimes you try something, you're like, wow, that's like all cinnamon. It just like attacked me. Or it's like too much clove. And I've only discovered recently that apparently I do not enjoy a lot of clove. I didn't know what clove was really. And then I was like, ooh. That is aggressive and all up in my business. And I yeah. do not, do not like that. I, I had a clove inspired or like heavily cloved apparently beer recently. And normally I'm, I just have not met a beer I do not enjoy to some degree. This was like just offensive I, as a person. I was offended at this beer. So I'm with you. There is a lot to be debated here yet, but I just think that's why we need a little bit of standard. If you could give like a, proportions or like, cause again, like what does pumpkin spice really mean? This is, we're going to derail this. What does pumpkin spice really mean? <laughs> it's, you know, like in what quantity to what magnitude are we combining these spices and everybody has like a different conception of that. And I just True. think maybe like the Germans, we could use a little unity, a little purity and a little organization. Yeah, that's true. I'm not, I, I don't think we should have a lot of pumpkin beer or pumpkin spice beer. I think we should just leave the squash and the nutmeg out of our beer. I think that you don't that like the squash. Be... Not a huge like a fan pump, of the do you like pumpkin... A pumpkin pie. I like pumpkin pie. It's not that I don't like the flavor of pumpkin or pumpkin yeah. pie. I just don't want it in my beer. <laughs> That's fair. It's like key. It's like it's like my soteriology. I don't want 
my obedience mixed in with my faith. I don't want, mm. I don't, that's, those are related, but separate and distinct things. That's, that's so what's the like the, what's the monergistic pie then? I don't know. Just like, I don't know. I don't know what the monergistic pie is. Uh, that, that's a great question. Somebody's going to help us out with that. It's got to be this. I don't know. I feel like maybe like uh, French silk pie because it's like chocolate pie maybe? for the most part. It's like wait, one wait, solid flavor just one, throughout. Yes. yes. Yeah. I'm thinking like a chocolate pie because I don't anything. You can't do apple, right? There's too much spicing in that. There's there's other influences outside yeah. of the apple. I think we could take a different approach at it. I think the monergistic pie for me is pretty much any pie because I don't make the pie myself <laughs> and it's a free gift to me usually. <laughs> usually from your mother. So... <laughs> I feel like that's the monergistic pie. So it could be pumpkin pie. It's probably you know, going to be pumpkin pie in a few weeks here. This is already off the rails. I just looked at the time. So I'm just going to lean into it for <laughs> just a second. I don't know how I came across this. I, you know, there's several places online where you can buy kind of like bespoke goods or uh, like stickers, t-shirts, yeah. things that people have made that are already essentially out there, but that you can, somebody else again is produced and used through like a website that allows you to make these custom things. I happened to find the other day, I know we had an episode where we talked about Salvation is Cake. Do you oh, you this? found the Salvation is Cake stuff. Yes. Yes, that is from a listener named Christine. She's in the Telegram group, actually. Oh, is she? Okay, yeah. it's on like Redbubble, I think, which yeah. is a kind of a bespoke customizing website. I found like these prints, these lovely prints that she made, and it, it, it references Reform Brotherhood. There's yeah. a couple of them out there, but there was like this print, Salvation is Cake. So maybe that's a just another free off the side affirmation yeah. that you the can go and find. The cake is salvation. That, that's, a, that's a deep cut. That actually came up in the uh, the Reform Brotherhood Telegram chat, which if you're interested, you can join at uh, Telegram, t.me slash Reform Brotherhood. Um, yeah, that was a fun that was a fun episode way back. Similar topic actually too, I think if yes. I remember what we were talking about at the time. Yes, that was actually correct. So I was imagine myself, me, so surprised to find Salvationist cake prints <laughs> that you could purchase. And honestly, I don't even remember how I came across these things, but they're out there enough, and it was easy enough to find them that I was I I my I was shocked. I was like, how do I not know about this? How do I not own one of these? That's funny. <laughs> that's, uh, that's amazing. And we're always talking about that, at least tongue in cheek, about how like, you know, we say all these kind of funky things on this podcast that they aren't bobber stickers or prints. And lo and behold, somebody Someone has actually it. done this. Somebody did yeah. it. Absolutely incredible. So, somebody did it. Somebody did it. All it's right. true. Let's uh, pivot. Christine. Let's pivot. Uh, yeah. Shout out to Sister Christine. Appreciate appreciate you. That's fantastic. Let's pivot and do a little affirming. What are you affirming with on this episode? So I'm affirming this is we need like a drum roll. If this was the Distilling Theology podcast, there'd be a sound effect here. So just use your imagination. Uh, I'm affirming Lagos 10. So Lagos 10 is releasing. Uh, it'll be Monday, uh, before you hear this episode. So it, it's set to release on October 10th. Uh, it's a, it's a super, uh, a super awesome update. They've done a lot of backend, uh, refinements that have made the software a lot more, uh, quick acting. It's not as resource intensive. Um, there's some major updates to the mobile device, um, version of the software. There's some new workflows and some new features. There's a, a whole skew or whole skew, a whole slew of, um, works, texts, books, things that people have been waiting for that uh, are coming out along with this. So uh, my understanding is the Legacy Standard Bible is being re uh, released alongside 
Logos 10. So oh, yeah. um, people, I know people have been waiting for a, a Logos yes. edition of the Legacy Standard Bible. I know that I have. So that's I what am. you've been waiting for. So you can go to our website. You can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos. If you use our affiliate link, you'll you'll get a discount on the Logos um, 10 release if you want to buy a base package. Um, we'll talk about some of the other promotions that are available specifically for Logos 10 uh, in the coming weeks, but it's, it's exciting. And I'm going to be doing uh, sort of a more in-depth feature review that I'll post on the website along with the affiliate link. I, um, I need to get a little bit more time working with the software to get a good understanding. I want to give you good information, but it's also going to be kind of a general introduction to Logos as a software. So I've been waiting to do that so that I can make sure I'm, I'm giving you a review and a feature review that is using the latest version. So keep an eye out for that. It'll be on the website. We'll make sure to reference it on the show here. But I've, I've had um, Logos 10, a pre-release version for a little while now. Um, they gave some of the, the people who are promoting it uh, some advanced copies to be able to make sure we know what we're talking about when we recommend it. And I got to tell you, it's it, visually, it's a better interface. Uh, it's faster. It's more responsive. There's a, a fair number of um, sort of quality of life enhancements that have come in. Uh, and then, like I said, there's some new workflows and some new new features that they've put in uh, to sort of help you get through a given process. Um, they've updated the mobile app. They've updated the web interface app. So all of this is coming coming at you uh, in, in pretty short order. And uh, check it out, reformbrotherhood.com slash logos, or you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash fundamentals. I don't know whether you can get the fundamentals version of Logos 10 uh, at that discount code, but you can check it out. Uh, and if that link isn't working, we'll get it updated with something that will soon. How about that? Quality of life enhancements. Know. Quality of life enhancements. That's, That's like the legit. common common programmer term for we just made it better. <laughs> I love that. And this is not to say I know there are plenty of people that love other sources like Olive Tree or things like that. Those are all great too. There, I would say Logos, man, Logos. They just know what they're doing. There's a lot of good history there, a pedigree itself. And as a resource, it's just phenomenal. So if you're looking for an excuse to... Purchase something that might help inspire you, move you back into the scriptures in a more profound way and give you some resources to help you do that. Really, I would say it's almost unparalleled. It's just a really fantastic yeah. resource. So it's really great. I, my affirmation is kind of the opposite direction because it's like more tactile, a little bit more analog. I think you know this and people who have listened to us for quite some time know this. You and I have this penchant, like this proclivity and this kind of deep nerdy love for things like stationary and writing utensils. Yeah. Like there's a great joy. And again, there's almost this dichotomy of like having these wonderful online resources. And then also these like physical means of study and processing and writing all that stuff. So I've long been on the search for the perfect mechanical pencil. And I assume this is like, I'm like everybody else. Like, are you also on that search? Have you been on that journey at any point in your life? Um, I've really shifted my focus to online resources and digital resources. How so dare you? I think mostly it's because I never learned how to write well. So how it's like dare. chicken scratch. But you yeah. have uh, you have handwriting that I've been told looks like a printed font. And I agree. <laughs> so it makes much more sense for you to be particular about writing instruments than me. Well, I suppose to this, maybe it depends on what your vocation in life is, um, depending on like how much writing you do or how important it is you do that, or whether you like to journal or draw all this stuff. Anyway, all right, enough of burying the lead. So 
I'm affirming with what I believe is the one mechanical pencil to rule them all. And I've been oh, researching for a long time. And then I, I put this out as a gift idea and my mother and my father actually got this for me and it's fantastic. So here's the affirmation. It's the Rotring, R-O-T-R-I-N-G 600 mechanical pencil. And I, if you're asking me, which I presume you are, I prefer the 0.5 millimeter lead. This is a hexagonal, hexagonal, hexagonal barreled pencil. And interestingly enough, as I just quoted like the German beer laws, this is made by a German company. It's a full metal body. So if you're looking this up online or you go to Amazon, get the full metal one because it feels awesome. It's indestructible. Like you could defend yourself against a rabid possum with this thing. It's incredible. And it just writes so well. So it's got this kind of non-slip metal knurled grip for to hold on to. It won't, if you're, I suppose this is actually beyond me too. Like this thing is used a lot of times by like people who are drafting buildings, who are yeah. architects or people like it won't fall off a drafting table that's angled because it's got that hexagonal kind of shape to it. It's just, but it's a really lovely pencil. It's the kind of pencil that you pick up and you say, I want to write the great next American novel <laughs> with this bad boy. You know what I'm talking about? I like do. it just makes you want to write. So this pencil is so good that I actually just purchased a second one to have one at home for my own studies and writing and one at work because I just never want to be without this bad boy. And it is so fancy that maybe people don't know this. You can buy a different type of uh, like this kind of mechanical pencil lead. It depends on like the softness of it. This pencil at the top, just underneath the eraser, has like this little dialed-in feature. We can actually select the type of lead that you're using, and it will adjust the way that the pencil holds the lead to accommodate whether the lead is harder or softer, depending on your own preference. Nice. So it's just a really nice pencil. It may be more than everybody and myself needs, but I find it. I was looking for something that was like super strong that would last forever. Like this is the last pencil you're gonna need. And something that was comfortable, that looked sharp, and that also was just a joy to write with. So I'm just going to say that you should just stop right now and go to the Rotring 600 Mechanical. There is an 800 version of this where like the tip is retractable, but I've seen some reviews that that mechanism can fail over time. So I just like the standard, just go with the 600. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Nice. I'm looking at this online and I, I think if I was in the market for a mechanical pencil, <laughs> this would be the way that I would go. I love that the, the like the images that they show, I'm looking at the on Amazon, the images they're showing. The one of the guy drawing is like a totally standard art class, three-dimensional object. And I'm like, yes. do most people draw that? Is that something people really draw as like this three-dimensional cube? But uh, yeah, it looks pretty sweet. What color? What color did you get? That's the real question. That's a great question. So I have what the one I received as a gift, which is beautiful, is in black, and the black is sharp. I think we can all agree that black is just amazing. And then I complemented that with a red one. Oh, all fancy. red. Yeah, listen, like John just, Owen style. Yes. If thank John you. Owen had a had thank a you. nice octagonal barreled mechanical pencil, he'd have the red one to match his red boots. Thank you. Speaking of that, real quick, before we transition into good works, there's a good work that I would like Paul Cox, who is part of RefTunes, <laughs> to do. I fully this idea by him. He needs to do a cartoon with John Owen in the red boots. And then he said to me, I would do that. I just need you to provide like some kind of reference because he's a man of his word. He wants to produce something that, of course, is true to what actually occurred. And so I, I just need to send him like the, the kind of the proof of the red boots reference and all that stuff like that. But I was just thinking about the other day, I was like, we, we need more of that 
We need more of that in the reform culture. It's like the job, and we need to like coin a phrase for that. Like, so our sister Christine can put that on some kind of printing. It's like, I don't know, the Red Boots principle or the Red Boots outworking or like, you know what I'm talking about? I do. I don't, I've tried to find a good historical source for that. And I, I haven't, that's the frustrating part is a lot of it is like secondary references. So I don't doubt that he wore the red boots. Right. Um, most of the references I find are references to his knee high leather boots, but they do not comment on the color. Yes. So if you reform brotherhood out there, if you find a good historical source, not, not, um, not a Gospel Coalition article referencing it or something like that, which that's right. fine, but that's not a historical source. We're looking for like a primary source of some sort that indicates he wore red leather boots. We would love to see that. And uh, I'm not going to promise you like a prize, but if I were going to promise you a prize, which I'm not doing, uh, it would be like red leather boots with the Reform Brotherhood logo on it. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. I'm not promising that. This does not constitute a legally binding contract. But that would be a pretty sweet, uh, sweet surprise for somebody. But you know what I've thought of is the modern or contemporary equivalent of this, the red boots is, and I, I'm standing behind this. I think it's like high top red converse. It's like wearing those to church in a place like a conservative congregation or church where they're kind of like sneakers yeah. are inappropriate. It's wearing your dress attire with the converse bright red high tops. That's what it is. Yeah. I but was it really was he was he acting outside of the normal styles at the time? I feel like he I, wasn't. I think that was actually like the that's the kicker is like this was pretty typical Puritan yes. garb for that era in England. So Yes. Well I mean the boots were like utilitarian in a yeah. sense, right? I mean everybody was wearing boots because they were also functioning in an era where you're riding horses and dealing with all kinds of nonsense. But obviously the color is the thing that most people found to be ostentatious. It's I think true. there could be an argument that because of his wealth, which I mean, he was he was far more wealthy than the average Puritan, that I think there was something as well about the boots themselves, about how high right. they were. Yeah. So there was maybe like this double- Were they like high. practically chaps? Is that- uh, I mean, yeah, again, so I'm, I'm working for like limited historical resources and probably secondhand stuff, but there definitely was, if you read about this, this idea that he was being ostentatious in two ways. One was, I think the nature of how expensive perhaps these boots were. And then of course to have them dyed red, which seemed like more or less both against kind of like the more demure color scheme, but also ostentatious in the ability to gather red dye and then to apply that to leather. You've got a dude that's obviously making a statement. And part of that statement was, uh, listen, like the Lord says about the Lord and not about the color boots that I'm wearing right now. <laughs> I feel like the equivalent might be wearing like a really nice pair of jeans to a conservative church where they only wear like dress pants. Sure. Yeah. That, that could, it's almost like these boots were made for worshiping, you know, like that, <laughs> that kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I guess. Po- it's possible. Yeah. So somebody find that for us. True. True. Please do. We would love it. Yeah, we would love it. And Paul Cox would love it too. That that's like just begging to be an amazing ref tunes. I would tune, like so. I would like to see the historical reference uh, that talks about Augustine riding a purple hippo. Um, <laughs> fair, otherwise fair this seems like a double standard. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I understand satire and puns. Fair enough. Everybody go check out ref tunes. We've given all kinds of great recommendations, affirmations true. On, on this episode so far. So let's get into like the meat here. There's plenty of meat on this bone. And, you know, we should say up front that, that we've talked about good works and let's just leave those two words to settle a little bit and to breathe because people have strong views on that stuff. Here you have 
and what the apostle James writing about good works. You have Paul writing about good works in Ephesians two. And here it comes Martin Luther, who is like, you know what we should throw out? Let's just throw out all of James because he's talking about good works. <laughs> so like, there's no small amount of debates even yes. among the reform community about what this actually means. So we're stepping into this lovely place where we like to be, which is to trigger everybody and nobody all at once. But yeah. let's talk about good works, good works as the root and what that means in salvation. I presume that we'll find ourselves at some point in Ephesians 2 as we try to underpack, underpack? unpack, <laughs> but not underpack what all of this means. Yeah. So one of the things that I think gets missed in a lot of conversations around good works. So, so Reformed Christians, Christians in general, um, I think have a lot of conversations about what good works are, what the role of good works are, what they what they right. do or don't do in terms of our salvation, are they necessary, all of those things. But one of the things that gets missed a lot is the cause of good works. Exactly. So that's what we're talking about. This episode is called Good Works, The Root. And we're talking about not that good works are the root, but the root of good works. So I want to read, I'm going to read an entire chapter of the Scots Confession of Faith, which is not somewhere we usually go. But if you haven't spent any time looking at the Scots Confession, you really should because it's it's formulated and structured slightly differently than the Westminster. And the difference in order and logical dependency is helpful because it helps us look at things from a different angle. So chapter 13 is titled The Cause of Good Works. I'm going to read the whole thing. It says, Wait, hold on a second. I'm fine with you going to this source. This is good. But you're going to have to choose at least one sentence to read like Sean Connery. I don't think I can do that. <laughs> I, I don't, I, not without offending an entire population of people. It's a bad idea. Alistair Bag will come knocking on my door. <laughs> that would be amazing. We'd just give him a microphone. No, but he'd have like a baseball us. bat. He'd come at me with sound. a broadsword like John Knox. Uh, okay, that's that's That'd be, more, yeah. Okay, all right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So Go chapter ahead. 13, entitled The Cause of Good Works, uh, reads, So that the cause of good works we confess to be, not our free will, but the Spirit of the Lord Jesus, who, dwelling in our hearts by true faith, brings forth such good works as God hath prepared for us to walk into. For this we most boldly affirm, affirm that blasphemy it is to say that Christ Jesus abides in the hearts of such as in whom there is no spirit of sanctification. And therefore we fear not to affirm that murderers, oppressors, cruel persecutors, adulterers, whoremongers, filthy persons, idolaters, drunkards, thieves, and all workers of iniquity have neither true faith neither any portion of the spirit of sanctification, which proceeds from the Lord Jesus, so long as they obstinately continue in wickedness. So that's not the whole thing, but I am going to stop there because I think this sets us up really well because both elements of what's usually controversial about good works are present here. So there's the cause of good works, which is the secret workings of the Holy Spirit. It's not our free will, right. but the spirit of the Lord Jesus who causes good, good works to come forth. But then that second part of what I read is that because this is true, because it is the Spirit who brings forth good works, and specifically the Spirit of sanctification who brings forth good works, then we we say that it would be blasphemy to say that that Spirit dwells in the heart of a person and does not bring forth those good fruit, those good fruits and good works. So so there's this um, tension in the Reformed tradition. And we, we say the Reformed tradition, just as a, a reminder, because of some of the stuff going on online, we say the Reformed tradition not because there's any authority or power in, quote, the Reformed tradition, but because we believe that the, the documents and the theology, which is formulated by those who call themselves Reformed, who are Reformed, 
is the closest, most accurate interpretation of the Bible that we we have available to us. So, so that's why we talk about the Reformed tradition. But within the Reformed tradition, there is this tension that not only is it true that we do not cause good works, uh, but also it's true that if good works are absent, we have no reason to think that the Spirit who brings about good works— right is also ab- we have no reason to think right. that spirit is present. So that's that's where we're at here is that what is the root of good works? It's the spirit of holiness bringing about sanctification in those whom Christ has called and justified. Full stop. But now the implications of that for how we understand who is a Christian, how do we understand good works to inform us about that? That's, I think, where we want to go with this episode and the time we have left. Because that's there's a lot of conversation online right now. This goes all the way back to like the John Piper, Mark Jones, our, C, our Scott Clark dust up about good works as the means to salvation, the means of obtaining, of, of inheriting salvation. We're not going to get into all those specifics, but this is an active conversation that's been going on for now at least three or four years since we started this podcast that that doesn't have a clean resolution because of the way that the tradition has talked about this. So I think this is an area of Reformed Christian theology that we would all do well to sort of look back at what our confessions actually say and therefore what we believe the Bible is actually teaching, and really take a second to look at it before we dive into and and sort of wade into um, the frustrations that are online. I saw a funny, a really funny um, interaction on Twitter the other day. Have you you heard of Pastor Aldo Leon? He's kind of like came out of nowhere and like he's everywhere all of a sudden. Seems like a good dude. He's, He's coming on hard against... Federal Fission Theology and other, you know, EFS, stuff like that. But I saw a funny interaction that I think was one of those ones where, like, you tweet before you really think it through, and then someone kind of kind of dunks on you a little bit. He basically said, like, any theology that affirms that uh, good works are a means to inheriting salvation is not Reformed theology. And someone immediately after him posted a quote from Bovink that was like, the Reformed have never objected to seeing good works as a means to inheriting inheriting salvation. So the the tradition that we affirm, the confessions that we hold are far more complex and far more nuanced than simply saying like good works has nothing to do with it. So right. that's where we need to to step back and do the work. But the first step to getting that right without going way off course is to understand where the good works come from. And that's what we we want to focus on today. There is an irony here, isn't there, that we're basically saying and we could end the episode almost right there. Mm-hmm. This idea that to do good works must come from the first, the first principle, good work, which is the work of Christ and then the work of Christ in us. So I think you're right. There is this maybe misfocus on like, what does the good work mean for us without understanding that the only reason you can do good work is because there was a work done in you, which is the progenitor of all that work and not just the progenitor, but the one that continues to provide the energy and the grace and the purification that substantiates that work itself. So it's a bit like, I think Jonathan Edwards was the one that originally said, like, all of my works are glittering sin, or my best works are glittering sin. And he's right, of course, in the sense that it, you know, by yourself, anything that you try to do is like in a double mind. It is not pure. And so if you try to just pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps, even presuming that you've been justified and sanctified, that even that, if you rely on those things to somehow push you forward, that that is betraying the fact that the good work comes 
through salvation by the power of the Holy Spirit, who continues to help you to walk in the proper way. So I think, as you've already read from the Scots Confession, there it's just saturated with Ephesians 2, which we kind of already previewed before. And so, you know, if you go to Ephesians 2, it's filled with this good news of grace that we sometimes ignore by the time we get to the good works. We get so distracted with what does good works mean and how do I promote those good works that we forget, again, like the genesis of those good works. And so it's filled with this good news of grace for both our justification and our sanctification. In fact, like that whole chapter begins by describing our natural condition. I'm moving I'm moving very close to the tattoo on your arm. I'm, that, that's where I'm going <laughs> with this. We're trapped in sin and by sin. We're rebelling against God to pursue our own ends on the one hand, and we're suffering as victims of those ends on the other. And then it moves, it moves to like how God loved us, like with a love that's like on pair, on par, like scalable in ways that we cannot comprehend. And he rescued us by his grace. That's his sheer good will. Yeah. And so the first half of the chapter focuses on what happened in the past, how God took pity on us and rescued his people, delivering us from our sin and his wrath. But of course, the story doesn't end there. And by the time we get to like the middle of that passage, we see like there is a clear theme and it's God's grace. And that theme was already mentioned all the way back in the first verse. But when Paul mentioned how God has set his mind on delivering us before the foundation of the world, what we're to understand is this undercurrent of how the good works that we do are first because God has done everything for us. We're yeah. saved by his grace, not by anything we have done. So therefore, anything that we do in the future is really a result of the Holy Spirit who comes to reside, this holy, holy, holy spirit of God, part of the Trinity of God himself, to come and to purify and to act in such a way where the good works become this natural, no pun intended, outworking of everything that God has done. So you're right. To understand what it is to do these good works that God has saved us for before even there was time itself, before that was a thing, is to understand where the essential energy, the first principle of the good work comes from. So I guess it is time then to shift into that conversation. What are, if the roots of the good works is God himself, what is understanding and having that root in your life? How does that actually manifest itself? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to bring one more passage, th this is Pauline theology through and through, right? Anyone who looks at, at the apostle Paul's works and thinks that somehow good works um, are a prerequisite to salvation rather than the outcome right. of salvation just isn't, it's just not reading carefully. And it doesn't, isn't even not reading carefully. You don't even have to read that carefully to, to get this. So I'm going to go quickly to Philippians. And one thing that I think it's missed in this conversation with this Philippians passage, I'm going to read verses, um, chapter two, verses 12 and following. What gets missed in this passage though, is that it starts out with therefore, right? So, so when he, whenever we see therefore, you have to ask what the therefore is there for, right? So you have to go back right. to the immediately previous section, which is the Carmen Christi, right? It's all about how Christ emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He obtained salvation for his people. And then God exalted him to the place, of, to the name above every name, and every knee will bow. Therefore, my beloved, because all of that is true, my beloved, this is verse 12, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is Amen. God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we've talked about this before, that you could understand this as saying it's God who works in you so that God can will and work for his good pleasure. That's one way grammatically that you could read this passage. I don't think that's the best way to read it. I think instead it's better to read it, for it is God who works in you 
both that you may will and work for his good pleasure. So it's it's God's work in you that generates your will to work and do good works for his pleasure. So we have to start off with that. And that makes the most sense of this text because it's coming right after the statement that that Christ is supreme overall, that, that God has given him a name above every name. And at that name, everyone will bow. Because of that reality, we can also affirm that God has given us the will and the work to do, and that he's empowered us and right. enabled us to do that work for right. his good pleasure, which is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2 in that back half of the, the first kind of pericope, is that God has saved us by grace, grace through faith so that no one may, may boast, but he has saved us by grace through faith in order that we might do the good works which he has prepared for us. So in a real sense... The purpose of our salvation is not just a cosmic get out of hell free card, right? It's not, it's not a it's not a, a pass to get out of the punishment. That certainly happens. But the purpose of our salvation is so that we might do good works to the glory of God the Father, right? That's that's what Paul says in, in Romans, that we were called and foreknown and justified and glorified, all that whole golden chain of salvation. The, the purpose of that is that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. So all of this is tied, as you're saying, the root of all of this good work is tied to the good work of Jesus Christ in saving his people. Amen. And it's also tied to the purposes of God in salvation to glorify his name, not just by rescuing a people and then leaving them in kind of this like tarnished, dirty, worthless state, but by rescuing a people and then moving them progressively onto holiness and perfection and righteousness, which culminates in glorification, which is is happens after death, right? We're not Roman Catholics. We don't think we can reach that. We're not even Wesleyans. We don't think we can reach that in this life. But sanctification is a process that progresses forward. The, the, the sanctified part overcomes over time. We talked about that just a few weeks ago. And the purpose of that is born out in good works in order to bring about the magnification and the proclamation of God's glory among all people, not just in the church, but among all people. Yeah. And it may be about our doing works. We're not saying that God doesn't work for you, but it's still very centered on God. And so all the passages you just talked about, they have, again, at like the center of them or at their beginning point, this idea that we are God's, his workmanship. We are created by God in Christ Jesus for good works. So in other words, those good works were those which God prepared beforehand. We didn't prepare those works. We didn't somehow create a schedule and ordain our lives in such a way that we would participate in these works. Is that God himself created them for us and set us up to be prepared to engage in them. So in every way we find that God is responsible and God deserves the glory, as you said. So clearly works are important to everything that Paul is saying, but his emphasis here and elsewhere is on God's bringing them about within us. So the question is like, well, what does that look like? You know, if our works are prepared beforehand, what do we do? And Paul just says like almost simply and like almost a non-Pauline way, he says, walk in them. Yeah. Like as if like walking is the simplest thing to do. And the same phrase he used to describe our life in sin, he's using elsewhere now to say like beforehand, you walked in this way. Now afterwards, you walk in the second way. Walk in the works which God has prepared, right. which God empowers. So good works become as much a part of our lives as our own pursuits were before. So in other words, at the most basic level, we just show up. 
We abide in the vine of Jesus, which is, of course, enumerated in John 15. We walk by the Spirit, which is, I think, like Galatians 5. And obeying what God asks of our energy, money, and commitment, even when it seems absurd or unfair, giving to the poor, surrendering our our independence and our pride, and forgiving the wrongs done to us, we do all these things. Not because somehow we've manufactured a new ability to participate in the spiritual life, but because we are converted into that spiritual life. We are new creations and new creations walk by normative stature in a different kind of work that is commensurate with their being. And because God has changed our being, therefore we walk in those ways. So there is like, in some ways I would say in different theological streams, particularly in the reformed faith, this idea that we have to work harder. We've talked about this, I think before. And what we're saying is that abiding is what's important to making, make sure that we are committing ourselves by way of our spiritual discipline, by way of our prayer life, by way of our study to abide abide in Christ Jesus so that these works become normative part of who we are, understanding that the Holy Spirit carries us. In some ways, this is no different than salvation, right? Because right. we say that when Jesus comes and arrests the heart, when he saves, and of course, like all of salvation is an act where all of God is acting in all the things that God does— that this itself is a manifestation of God doing the work and yet us being involved in the outworkings of that work that God has already done. If it's true for salvation, it's got to be true with, in some ways, lesser things like the work that God has given us to do on a Wednesday morning or Thursday afternoon or a Saturday evening. All of this we find God bringing the energy, the power. There is a, a submission that comes from a heart that is in harmony Now, the identity that we talked about in Christ never gets severed. There can be, in some ways, a disruption of our harmony in which we bear some responsibility for undertaking the disciplines of being abiding in Christ at all times. That's what we have to get after. But it just strikes me that what Paul says is, walk in it, show up, do these things, which are part of the call. He says, like, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you call. So there is like a responsibility there, but he would say, like, I I think if Paul were like on the podcast, which... Uh, that would be, be amazing. Sweet. Yeah, it would be like the definitive Pauline episode for sure. It would be one of those things where he's saying like the indicative and the imperative come together right. in our God. And so like you find that manifested in these good works. Yeah. I want to read a little bit out of um, Matthew. And, and, you know, my my motto in most cases when we're talking about scripture, if something doesn't seem clear or if if you aren't sure what it means, just read a little bit more. That's that's a really important function. And I'm reading out of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. So this, this part's out of chapter five. And this is one of those places where like, because Christ in the Sermon on the Mount speaks in sort of these shorter, pithy statements, and then also because of how our Bible editors who are compiling and printing and publishing these have added figurehead, like headings to try to help us, it actually screws us up in this case. So I'm reading from verse um, verse 14 uh, of chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do the people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives life to all the ho- all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, I'm going to stop and, and make a quick comment, but I want to I just continue reading after this because the next section... Although we often read it as though it's disconnected and it's like these are these sort of almost like proverbs that just sort of get smashed together, the next section is directly related. But right here, if the source of our good works is not God, then why would our good works cause people to give glory to God the Father? So even just surface level analysis, 
The only reason that our good works bring glory to God is because he's the ultimate cause of them. So let's keep reading. Verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this can get sideways really fast, right? Because this leads into all conversations about new covenant theology and dispensationalism and antinomianism and theonomy. And we're going to talk about some of that stuff coming up in in, uh, several weeks here. But the main point of all of this is that Christ says, do good works, so good that your Father may be glorified in heaven. And then he goes straight into talking about the law and how he didn't come to abolish it. And whoever relaxes it will be condemned. And whoever teaches it and does it will be exalted. It is really important for us to remember that the Bible teaches and the Reformed Confessions and tradition affirms that the law of God in all of its elements— right? In different ways, but in all of its elements, the law of God still teaches us what it means to be righteous and holy and what a good work is. So that's the other part of of the, um, the Westminster tradition specifically that I think it's missed is there's something that I call, I'm trying to pull up the confession here quickly as I talk. There's something that I call the regulative principle of good works. And I've said it before and I get some pushback on it. When we talk about the regulative principle of worship, Really, all that we're doing is we're applying sola scriptura to worship, right? We're saying that scripture alone norms our worship and our piety and our our practice on the Lord's day. There's no good reason why that statement, that the scriptures alone norm our practice, why that's restricted to the Lord's day. And so here's here's what Westminster chapter 16, section one says, "'Good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word.'" And not as such, without the warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. So what this means is that good works are not defined by us. We don't get to decide what a good work is, right? So whether that's something really ostentatious, like uh, like praying to Mary, that can't be considered a good work because God has not sanctioned it. He's not commanded it in his word. Right. But I think even when we think about... Um, other stuff that Christians often would consider good, right? Um, the example I always use is like helping a little old lady across the street. That's a nice, fine thing to do. Um, it may it may be an application of God's law, right? Maybe you're coming to this and you're saying, this is a busy road. I want to help her get across the road fast and safe. So this is an application of the, the prohibition against murder and the positive element of it of preserving and, and endorsing and, and causing life to flourish. Maybe that's your implication, or maybe you're thinking this will be nice because then people see and they'll think I'm really great. That doesn't get to be a good work unless it's an application of what God's law has commanded us to do. And so when Christ here is saying that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and that those who teach it and do it will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven, this is a direct statement that we have to turn to God's law. Again, in all of its elements, the ceremonial law and the civil law have been abolished except for uh, the general equity thereof. But that doesn't mean that that general equity does not teach us in principle what God considers to be good, 
right? Building a building a, a rail around the roof of your house is considered good because that's an application of the moral law of of preserving life, right? Um, so we have to look at God's law to see what these goods work are, good works are, and isn't that almost exactly what we see Jesus teaching, what we see Paul teaching, right? He says he talks about, or James, I suppose, he talks about um, doing good works and how you'll you'll demonstrate your faith by your good works, and then he immediately goes into a discussion of the royal law, of the law of love, and what, how that's an application of God's moral law. So I just think we have to, as we continue on in this series, we're going to talk again next week about good works and what the fruit of good works are and how they are the fruit of the root of salvation. We're going to continue this discussion, but it's important for us to establish right up front, good works are not just what you make them up to be. It's not just any nice thing that you've, you manage to think of yourself doing. The same way that we can't um, put up an easel in, in the sanctuary and do a painting, you know, like a live painting and call that the worship service. We can't do that because God hasn't commanded us to do that. He hasn't authorized that in his word. We also can't just decide what we think a good work is and then believe that somehow we're pleasing God by that unless we have some some sort of positive command or sanction from his word that is an ap- that that act is an application of. Yeah, I think that's helpful. It's we're talking about what is the good work. I meant to bring that up earlier is when we say good, we're holding it up to some standard. We presume there's a bad work or a work that's mediocre or one that's not acceptable. So we do have to start with what is in fact that very good work. And again, this all comes back to what God has done through us in Jesus Christ and then applied by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is all essential into understanding how we walk day to day and what is we accomplish more or less. I think people are thinking about the things that we accomplish on behalf of God's part that he has enabled us to do. And if we're looking at our lives as emissaries, as ones who have authority to bring the gospel and the good news and to speak and to profit from that gospel, to share and proclaim it, but then to also manifest it or demonstrate it in the way in which we believe and we behave, you know, again, like on just like every common interaction that we have with people, then we have to understand that that comes from God, that there's nothing in that that we're manufacturing ourselves, but to be faithful in it is to walk according to that call and that calling to which we've been, you know, given in Jesus Christ. So, I'm totally with you. You know, it strikes me that like God always brings about the thing which he desires for us to do. And I hope that people feel at the end of this, that there is a great form of encouragement in that, that Jesus Christ manifests the promise of God in coming to do away with the things that inhibit us from doing the good work that God has given us to do. So I've just been thinking recently in John, where after Jesus is raised from the dead, like he speaks with Mary and he comforts her. He says, like, my peace I bring to you. And he says the same thing to his disciples. And you know, like in the resurrection of Jesus, we might imagine that there could be a frustration in God. So Jesus rises from the dead and there's like nobody there to greet him. You know, you can imagine like somebody being frustrated. Like I told you guys about this. Like I said on the third day, I kept mentioning like the third day and there was nobody here. And I just walked out. Uh, where was like the welcoming party? Where's like the celebration? Where were the trumpets and the banners and the palms then? And when he comes and he speaks to Mary, this unique experience where, though I doubt she was the only one there, even she shows up more or less by accident because she's trying to you know, sweetly attend to who, what she thinks is the corpse of her beloved savior. In that moment, you know, he speaks to her and he opens her eyes that were spiritual and she recognizes him and calls him out as teacher. It's this callback to like what God has promised and God has promised, not just this great salvation for us. But out of that salvation, good works for us to do in this life. 
that that promise finds its roots, its center, its being, even going back to another garden, which is the the fall comma allergies, where God says to Adam and Eve, listen, the serpent is going to strike your heel, but the seed, the son will crush the serpent's head. And where do we not find that like beautifully come to its fruition? If in another garden where Jesus is speaking to Mary, another woman, and saying, listen, now you're seeing in your own time the manifestation of that, that the serpent's head has been crushed ultimately in being me being raised from the dead. And here as we stand in a garden where you thought that you mistook me for the gardener at first, that here I'm delivering on the promise that what God has said he would do, he would do. And therefore, out of that great promise, there are going to be all kinds of good works. And I think we need to remind ourselves that these are good works. In other words, like they're good for the glory of God. They're good for our own essential being. Like they're yeah. good temporarily. They're good for us to do. They bring yeah. us satisfaction. They bring a pleasure. They bring glory to God. They bring the greatest ends in this temporal life as well as the one to come. And so I think sometimes we think of God as a taskmaster and we're like, what must I do? God says I have to do work. What is that work? And I can onks over all of that work that he's supposedly given me to do. And here we find that God is saying, it's just good work. Just yeah. walk and abide and trust and move forward faithfully. Commit yourselves to the first principles of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And in some ways to quote, quote Keith Green, like he'll take care of the rest. That yeah. is like a truism. And yet there is at the same time our commitment to those very things. But even that commitment itself comes from God. So I find that it's interesting to me that some will read James, some will look at Ephesians 2 and say, oh, well, this makes the uttermost sense to me. There's, there's just no debate on this. And some will read that and say, this makes no sense. And I, I think it's even more simpler than both those uh, views. And that is, if we're going to say that salvation is monergistic, that the work of God itself is monergistic in our lives, we find ourselves carried along as it were when we devote ourselves to God. But even that devotion, it's a bit like saying, you know, you need to have faith, but where does that faith come from? That itself right. is a gift. And yeah. so these works are a good gift, a good gift from God, and that he himself provides all the volition, all of the necessity, all of the purpose, all of the energy, all the proclivity to do these things as because he is good to us. And so that, that securing, as it were, of the gift itself means that the goodness that we receive, the goods that we have to deliver unto God, as it were, are things that he's already acquired for us to be able to deliver I'm sure there's any number of metaphors we could bring to bear, but they would all fall short of this idea that to walk in God and to manifest these good gifts are something that's like far easier than we've ever imagined because we can't imagine again, like the scale of God's love for us and what he's accomplished. It just also means that we need to be committed in our spiritual discipline in particular to seeking after these good gifts. And when we do that, they become easy because we know that his, his yoke and his burden is light when we come to him. Yeah. And so we need to get over that part and then to be prepared to be just be faithful in our proclamation of the gospel and our desire to bring our emotions and our thoughts, even all the intellectual capacities under submission to God. And that when we do that, he is going to work within us to produce these things in ways that are like, you know, greater than we can imagine. Like the last thing I'll say is like, when we, we speak about like the parable of like the good steward and we think about this harvest or even like the parable of the seed this harvest that gets ma manufactured and multiplied like 110 X, whatever, like we fool ourselves. If we think that somehow we contribute to that like multiplication. It's God himself who does that multiplication of the faithful steward. And how is that faithful steward even faithful? It's because God has arrested yeah. and secured them. So to rest in that and to walk faithfully in that is I think our best objective. And the thing that we ought to focus on. 
Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot more that could be said. And the good news is that we're going to continue the discussion next week. So we'll be able to say a lot of the things that could left be said. Um, but you're true. absolutely right. The, the the moral of the story or the end point of this episode is that the root of all of our good works is ultimately God. But in terms of like the proximate root, the thing immediately in our life that produces and causes these good works is the saving work of Jesus Christ in our life. And so when when we talk about, and we'll talk about this more next week, but the 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 real, I think the real punchline is that a lot of times the good works that we do, they feel totally ordinary. They're just our That's everyday true. life, and it's the spirit of holiness, the spirit of sanctification, who is producing these good works out of the new life that he has created and creating in us. And so we oftentimes don't even think about it. We don't even recognize the good works that we're doing, sometimes until someone might point them out to us, right? So we'll, we'll talk more about that. That's a little sneak peek for next week, but we'll, we'll talk about that and how now the fruit of this, how that actually unfolds in our life and what does what are the implications of the fruit that the Holy Spirit bears in us in these form of, this form of good works. So I, I think this is a good conversation to be having. It, it latches right into a lot of the controversies that are going on in our modern day with federal vision and new perspective of Paul and Lordship of Salvation. All of these things are tied into good works and what role they play and what they, what they have to do. So I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation next week, and I'm really, really excited that we're going through it. It's, I think it's an under-emphasized element of theology that, that um, I think we all would just do a lot better to think about. I feel like I say that every week, but... I also suppose we probably wouldn't be talking about it if if you and I didn't think these were good things to be talking about. So right. this is our show. We can talk about what we want to. And it gives the moral of the <laughs> yeah, story. The, bottom, the bottom line is this is equivalent to like somebody saying like, listen, if you talk to like agnostic or an atheist, they still have to make an account for like how we got this world. Right. That's kind of the same thing for how you understand works. God has called us to works. The Bible is explicit about that. You have to discern what that means. You right. can't get away from that question. Yeah, so absolutely. you basically have to think through it. So hopefully this episode is a catalyst for that. And while salvation is by faith through grace, this podcast is in some ways by works. In other <laughs> words, like it takes a little bit of work and it also takes a little bit of money to support all the things that we do, all the incidental costs and making sure it's free and making sure it does everything from making sure like we don't sound like we're talking in a tin can and it's at least pleasurable to your ear to how quickly it downloads into your favorite podcast catcher. So I, I want to just, I would be remiss, honestly, if I didn't say that there are so many who are part of uh, brothers and sisters, part of the Reformed Brotherhood, who after satisfying and graciously and generously giving to other churches say, you know what, I have a little bit left over and I want to give some financial support to the Reformed Brotherhood to make sure that it remains free. We're so thankful for all of you and everybody who supports, prays, reaches out to us, emails, leaves voicemails. Thank you. If for some reason you're thinking, you know what, I would also like to make sure this remains free for everybody then oh, here's what I recommend you do. Go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash backslash Reformed Brotherhood. And there's a little way for you to quickly get connected to us and to give a small one-time donation, or if you'd like to give a small one-time gift, there are many who give anywhere from $1 to whatever it is that they want to give. All of that counts. And I know that you and I have spoken about off the air so many times about how thankful we are that there are people that are joining together to make sure that all of the costs of making this happen just get taken care of. And we, we worship and we praise God for that kind of generosity. So thank you so much. Everybody is welcome to check out the Patreon website 
and to give. Uh, if not, we're just thankful that you're listening and that hopefully you're processing and tracking with us and that you're worshiping God as we have this conversation together. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I think that's as good a way to end it as any. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.